I'm Dave Lawler, the world editor at Axios. When Russian President Vladimir Putin announced the invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, he said his mission was to liberate Russian speakers in the eastern borderlands of Ukraine, an area called the Donbass. Putin invaded along three major axes, from the north toward Kyiv, the capital, from the south up from the occupied Crimean Peninsula, and from the east, where Russian-backed separatists had occupied parts of the Donbass since 2014. The attack on Kyiv failed. The offensive in southern Ukraine made more progress, targeting cities like Mariupol, which faced a weeks-long siege. At the time of this taping, 12 weeks into the war, the last Ukrainian troops there have just surrendered. But as the broader war effort stalled and Ukraine's government held firm in Kyiv, Putin decided to concentrate his firepower in the east to assert Russian control of all of the Donbass. That's where the fighting is now concentrated. For Putin, this is about securing control of the eastern borderlands and the southern coast of Ukraine, a territorial expansion he could sell as a victory for Russia. In his Victory Day speech on May 9th, Putin said the battle in Donbass was taking place on Russian land. For Ukraine, the goal is now to defeat Russia on the battlefield, to end the de facto occupation that began in 2014 in the east, and to restore the country's 1991 borders. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, speaking by a translator, told Jake Tapper in a recent CNN interview. For us, the battle for Donbass is very important. The battle of the Donbass will decide the outcome of this war. In that CNN interview, Zelensky mentioned the Ukrainian service members who are stationed there, who all of this is riding on. First of all, our grouping that is located in Donbass is one of the best military we have. It is 44,000 professional military men who survived a great war from the beginning of 2014. For this episode, I spoke to one of those men, a corporal and medic named Andri, who's been stationed in the Donbass on and off for the last eight years and continuously for the last nine months. It was just a mostly usual day. Only a little bit of bad luck and that small piece of metal. We'll go to the front lines with Andri and hear about the dangers Ukrainian soldiers are facing every day, how they keep going, and what's happening to the cities and civilians around them in the Donbass. But first, you'll hear from a journalist named Katerina, who grew up in the Donbass and has been covering the war on the ground since it engulfed her hometown in 2014. She'll tell us what life was like before all that and what the last eight years have wrought. I stopped wearing high heels because shoes with flat surface are better for running. The trajectories of the lives of both Katerina and Andri have been reshaped by this war. Both of their families have been torn apart by it. 
Their stories illuminate why this war is coming down to this fight for this place and why the stakes are so high. From Axios, this is how it happened. Putin's Invasion Part 5, The Fight for the Donbass. My name is Katerina Malafeyeva. I was born in Donetsk in 1988. Katerina is a news producer, currently for Al Jazeera. Over the last few weeks, we've been in touch with her over WhatsApp and Zoom. She grew up in the Donbass and knows it better than almost anyone. You probably don't even know where is Donetsk right now. Or maybe you heard because of the news. But for us, you know, the city of one million people and we had Rihanna. As in Rihanna has performed in Donetsk while on tour. Here's a clip of that concert, uploaded to YouTube back in 2011 by a user named Akolo Football. Beyonce has performed there too. Prior to 2014, we had everything, so we didn't need to be somewhere else or seek for better future somewhere. Everything changed in 2014. Putin annexed the Crimean Peninsula and sent in insurgents to instigate a separatist movement in the Donbass. There's been a battle for control of the region ever since, with some areas, like Katerina's city, controlled by the Russian separatists. I didn't see, like, the brigades, but things changed in a different way. Change of the currency, change of the products. Majority of the products were started coming to uh, Donetsk from Russia. It's very difficult to engage with somebody on the street, like, to interview a person, because people are simply afraid. People have been living under curfew for already eight years. Even small personal decisions were impacted. I stopped wearing high heels because shoes with flat surface are better for running if you need to find some cover from the shelling. I also stopped listening to the music, drive with open windows in order to hear shelling. You know, when you live in the war zone, you need to be very attentive to the sounds. In 2014, Katerina was working as a teacher and a volunteer coordinator at an NGO. She decided to become a journalist. I stayed until 2016 in Donetsk because I worked as a producer for international media. But living in such circumstances was extremely hard because not only because of the shelling or or, or shooting, but also because the working for international media uh, drags a lot of attention from security services to you. I, I received signs of being surveilled or being kind of pressured. She made the decision to leave, but her parents stayed behind in Donetsk. We got disconnected because I chose leaving, I chose the world. I chose the progress instead of stagnation. When she was growing up as an only child, hers was a pretty typical Donbass family, to hear Katerina tell it. Every second family had somebody working in the coal mine. Uh, And my parents, they worked as well as miners. My father is a coal miner and my mom was a coal mine engineer. Mining defines the economy, the geography, and the iconography of the place. Normally people build cities along the rivers, for example. So nobody would set up the city where it's very windy in the steppe. It was not uh, appropriate land for people, but only hardworking people, people with great character can actually survive in that area. If you ever have a chance to visit Donbass, you will see very bright sun and black soil. That's what the miners see when they get on the surface. 
that black soil and bright sun, Katerina told us that's the inspiration for the flag of Donetsk region. She also told us that when she visited the UK, she went to the grave of the entrepreneur who founded Donetsk. Listening to her talk about this place, you can feel the passion and the love that she has for it. I feel myself still as a person from Donetsk, no matter where I live. When I, ha- when I undertake trips to Donbass, I feel that your daughter came home. <laughs> that heavy industry that Katerina's parents worked in made the Donbass crucial to the Soviet economy. It created a melting pot, mostly ethnically Ukrainian, but largely Russian-speaking, with many other nationalities thrown in. After the collapse of the USSR, the region had a complicated identity. Many Ukrainians there still speak Russian, and families straddle both sides of the border. There were tensions with Kyiv after independence. For some in Donbas, there was a sense of alienation that Western Ukrainians looked down on them. But until 2014, hardly anyone in the Donbas questioned the idea that they were living in Ukraine, and they certainly didn't expect a war over that very question. Since 2014, the Donetsk Katerina knew has evolved into something else entirely. It's a police state with a very diverse system of the security services where things are under control. Internet is under control. Every time you cross to that area, your phone's been checked. People are afraid to talk to media. People don't have connection to the world. They don't have Swift systems. They cannot buy things on Amazon or AliExpress. No train connection, either from Ukraine or Russia. No flights. Overall, the situation in Donbass could be described as stagnation, despair, uncertainty. There's also the daily uncertainty about access to essentials. So they have water only once per day for two hours. There is a huge risk of this water being contaminated because of the fighting right now. Katerina explained that some people haven't left even if they can. They were exposed to the Russian media, Russian propagandist media. She said she's called contacts of hers in the Donbass since the fighting started, urging them to leave. Because I knew that uh, there will be another push on Donbass. And I said, listen, just can you just relocate because it would be safe for your child? Because, you know, shells do not select where to land. And uh, some people they refused because they watched this Russian or pro-Russian media for years. Those channels position the war as a struggle to defend the Donbass from neo-Nazis in Kyiv. But even after living through and covering the eight years leading up to full-scale war, she was still shocked on February 24th. Much of the world found out what was happening from news networks. Loud explosions have been now heard in Ukraine in lots of different cities as the Russian assault has begun. As air raid sirens rang out across Kyiv, authorities... Russia is picking off Ukraine's military facilities one after another, but Ukrainian troops are fighting back. Here's how Katerina found out. I was in Mariupol at 6 a.m. in the morning. I woke up from loud knocking into my door from my correspondent. I opened the door and he told me, it's happening. Kyiv is being bombed. It took me couple of minutes to understand when somebody is saying that Kyiv is being bombed, it's so weird. You can't, you cannot believe your ears. Since then, her job as a news producer has taken her to numerous cities, 
back and forth to the front lines. She sent us audio from the road. Her work is made more difficult by constant shelling. Most everyone is working under those conditions. Firefighters, medical workers, paramedics, police, and also the miners, for example. They do their routine job and at the same time shells land. Katerina hasn't been able to return home since January of this year, even as she covers the war from other hard-hit cities like Bucha or Irpin or Kharkiv. She thinks about her father on the other side of the front lines. It's been tough because you can't detach yourself because you have beloved people there. A little over a month ago, Katerina learned that her mother passed away. She's still not sure exactly what happened. Two days before her death, the shell landed on the next street from them, and more than 17 people died and much more were injured. So, of course, it traumatized because there was a huge sound. But she kind of also had issues with her health, and there was difficulty with uh, buying this um, medicine. Other than her father, all of Katerina's relatives are in Russia. Their reaction to her mother's death deepened her pain. None of my relatives expressed any condolences to me. When I lost somebody who was the most important person for me, my mom, they didn't even dare like to send me a message and say, Katya, I'm, and we are sorry for your loss. So I blame them for that, and I blame the propaganda for this. When the war came to her hometown, Katerina documented it from the very beginning. Eight years later, she has no intention of stopping. This war affected my life tremendously. And I asked myself, how long are you going to continue to do that? But otherwise, who knows better the stories than me? Then Maybe it's not my choice, maybe it's also a destiny. It's become hard for her to envision any other life. Most of the discussions I have with my friends or contacts are only about the war. There is nothing about future plans. There are no discussions about how, what we will do after the war. It occupies majority of my time. After the break, we'll go right up to the front lines. We'll hear from Andri a soldier stationed in the Lugansk region of the Donbass, about what this war is like for the soldiers fighting it. Welcome back. Name's Andriy Shadrin. I am operating in Donbass operational zone. So we're operating on the whole front line from here to what is left from Luhansk region that we control currently. Andri grew up in Crimea. Like Katerina, the war for him also started in 2014. That's when Russia annexed the Crimean Peninsula. Today, Andri's a corporal and a medic. He sees the battle from a lot of vantage points. He's a displaced Ukrainian, he's a medical worker, aiding soldiers and civilians, and he's an experienced veteran looking out for the younger guys. He sent us stories, videos, and pictures from the front lines, sharing what it's like to be months into this battle and years into the war with no end in sight. We've been in touch with Andri over WhatsApp for the last almost four weeks. One of our calls was over video, so picture a 26-year-old guy on a cot surrounded by bandages, military gear, a gun. He's got a shaved head, and... I've got a beard that 
looks pretty much as a disaster right now, I suppose. <laughs> Andre, as you can tell, has kept a sense of humor living through all this. But even when he's joking, he can quickly turn reflective and serious. The other day, he sent over a meme. It was a photo of a vending machine with a sign that said the light inside is broken, but I still work. I keep all my mental force and emotional forces to show everybody around that everything is as fine as it can be, and I am as fine as I can be. But of course, I'm a normal person. I am absolutely desperate, I might say, about what's going on with my country. Sometimes our calls were interrupted. Once because of shelling, another time... I'm awfully sorry. Okay. Because a drone suddenly appeared above his base. Driving a drone right above us, I'm sorry. Typically, those calls came at the end of a very long day. From his unit's base in a converted civilian building in the Lugansk region of the Donbass, where the fighting over the last few weeks has been among the most intense of the war to date. We're drinking gallons of coffee. And then you come back to the base. If you're lucky enough, you'll have something to eat. If not, you'll have to cook or just go to bed if you're too tired. They can't take any resources they do have for granted. Just like in the separatist-controlled areas, even water is scarce. Might be hard from time to time to deal with the regular stuff like shower. It is now officially noted that in Lugansk region, there is no water supply almost everywhere in the regions that Ukraine still controls. Only the water then can be brought by car or something like that. I've never been that tired in my life. Never. And I think that most of Ukrainian army on the front lines feel the same way. Before all of this, Andri grew up just a 10-minute walk from the beach. And to hear him tell it, he was a sharp kid who studied hard, knew several languages, and imagined a bright future for himself. He was just 18 when the war began, in the middle of his studies. I started the information technology in college. One of my ideas was to study in Sevastopol, where there is a nuclear university, and to work on a nuclear plant. Or otherwise, when you're able to study the programming languages, when you know English, and you're able to write a site when you're 16, a lot of roads are open for you, I suppose, especially when it was 2012. That was all interrupted. A wave of pro-democracy protests swept the country in 2014. Andre told us he took part as a teenager, immediately after the protests toppled the pro-Kremlin president at the time. Putin made those first incursions into Ukraine. He sent little green men, soldiers without Russian military insignia, into the Donbas and onto the Crimean Peninsula. They surrounded a Ukrainian marine base in Andre's hometown. He said at the time, he tried to smuggle goods to the stranded Ukrainian Marines and was caught and beaten up by Russian soldiers. That was the moment I understood that I'm going to fight. The Ukrainian military turned him away at first. He thinks that's because anyone from Crimea was considered suspect. So, determined to do something by his telling, he joined a militia group called Right Sector. The group has been described as far-right or ultra-nationalist, though Andriy claims that wasn't his experience. Regardless, it's considered an extremist group by the Russian government, and he'd be arrested for his involvement if he were to return to Crimea while it's under Russian control. 
Like Katerina, Andrea is an only child who's been cut off from his parents by the war. He told us they were born in Soviet Russia and relocated under the communist government to Crimea after they finished school. They still live there, and he hasn't seen them since 2014. Unfortunately, there is a massive disconnect because I am a Nazi for them, and I'm brainwashed with the propaganda, and I, I haven't heard it personally, but it was between the lines in the dialogues I tried to keep on with them. Andriy's service and his exile from his home in Crimea has spanned eight years and half a dozen deployments to the Donbass. He was already on the front lines there for six months, fighting Russian-backed separatists, before Putin announced his full-scale invasion of Ukraine. 24th of February, when I restored the internet connection on my cell phone, and I like read everything that I was texted by my mates from service. They were like writing me that the whole country is invaded. My job didn't change a lot, <laughs> only the circumstances around. Because everything here in Donbass, we were dealing with the war for eight previous years. Today, the unit Andriy commands has three primary tasks. He helps distribute information to troops on the front line. He goes on missions, focused on repairing equipment. And as a trained medic, he treats wounded soldiers and civilians. In videos Andriy sent us from the front lines, you can hear the shelling clearly. The smell of, you know, the smoke, the smell of gunpowder and the sounds of shelling and fights all around you. You have to still work. You have to still keep the system functional. Andre sent one video from a patrol mission. The sky overhead is gray. Andre said that's from the nonstop fires on the front line. In the video, you can hear the rumble of the car, the men speaking to each other, and the music playing defiantly aloud. Ironically enough, it's from a Russian band called The Sky Above Your Head. He told us the lyrics roughly translate to, who told you it would be easy? It hasn't been. Hours after our first conversation, Andre ended up in a firefight with Russian troops. He was struck in the leg with shrapnel just below his knee and he had to treat the wound himself until he could be evacuated. That definitely was not a bullet, because a uh, hole is too like, small for a bullet. And luckily for Andre, he told us it didn't damage his muscle or the bone. He had a procedure to clean the wound, which he underwent without painkillers, because supplies were low, and many soldiers around him had more severe injuries. Andre could walk, but he couldn't run or jump. So he knew he couldn't go out on many missions, but he knew there was work to do on the base while he was healing, and he decided to go right back to it. If I'm available to be useful for the unit, for the army, for the nation, that's the place where I have to be. That was Andre's third shrapnel wound since 2014. He feels fortunate that they've all been relatively minor. He's lost many friends in this war. Almost each day, I get the message one friend of mine or more of them are dead or have injured or imprisoned. Each of those guys I've lost is an absolutely unique and good person I've knew from a good side 
and nobody will give them back to their families, to their friends, to the ones they loved. We don't know exactly how many Ukrainian soldiers have died in this war, but we know many have. And the West may be sending money and weapons to aid Ukraine, but no one is sending troops to replace those fallen soldiers. Meanwhile, Russia isn't just attacking Ukrainian soldiers. Russians have a lot of infantry and they're shelling the cities, shelling the positions of Ukrainian armed forces. They do it in a pretty chaotic way and dealing a lot of destructions, mostly to a civilian infrastructure and also cause a lot of losses to civilians. As the war has gone on, reports have emerged of the destruction and tragedy Andriy described to us. Russia escalating attacks on critical infrastructure throughout Ukraine. Scores of Ukrainian civilians killed and vast swaths of infrastructure, residential and commercial buildings, even hospitals and schools destroyed. At least 17 people were wounded after a Russian airstrike destroyed a maternity hospital in the city of Mariupol. Andriy says the suffering of civilians has been even harder to take. When the soldier suffers and dies, it is sad, but it is a part of his job. When it happens to a civilian, that's insane. It isn't the thing that should happen at all. What's happening here is a, is a genocide. I don't know how to call it in another way. Just like Katerina, he interacts with people who likely sympathized with Russia before all of this. And even after Putin announced the invasion, they chose not to leave. Part of our job is to deliver the humanitarian aid to the shelters. And it is really hard because civilians are crying and asking us not to leave them alone with Russians. And most of them, I suppose, were supporting Russia before the 23rd of February. As we kept in touch with Andriy and Katerina over the past few weeks, we got a glimpse of the toll this war is taking on so many inside Ukraine. They've both seen this horror up close, and the strain on both of their families has only worsened. We asked Andri if he'd been in touch with his parents after his injury or in the weeks since. We've stopped just a second. The last messages are from the 24th of April, Orthodox Eastern. My mother texted me. She was like, talking to me as if everything is fine. And I kind of lost my... mm. So I just sent her some photos of damaged buildings and all the stuff like that and asked her if it is okay to be a sponsor of all this because she's a Russian taxpayer. And she didn't answer me nothing. I don't know what she's thinking about it. I'm not sure how it is to... how to react this stuff when your new family is living in some kind of a parallel reality. They just, they cancel the fact their army is invading a sovereign country, killing people here and destroying the cities. I'm not sure if anyone in the world knows how to react on this situation in a proper way, how to do it right. So I've decided just to show the truth. A few days after our first interview with Katerina, she discovered that her cousin's son was fighting in the Russian military, seemingly on the ground 
in Ukraine. She was devastated. I saw the pictures of him in the military uniform of Russian forces. I, I, I got suspicious because I saw one of the posts was on 24th of February. And then I saw another photo where he was in full winter Russian uniform. So it kind of struck me that he might be actually sent to Ukraine and he could be fighting somewhere in Kharkiv or Kherson or the east of Ukraine. She said she reached out to her cousin. They fell out years ago. They see Russia, Ukraine, Katerina's work, and this war very differently. Her cousin didn't deny that her son was fighting in Ukraine. This really affected me. I remember him being, you know, a newborn, two months old, and I was helping to feed him and to change his diapers. Uh, it's not only that, it's not only that he, he can actually die, but it's also, it, it shows the whole fracture, the whole uh, clash of, of the identities and, and narratives. I know that his mother hates me, but if he died in Ukraine, she would hate me more. Much like Katerina, Andriy also has a hard time imagining a life beyond this conflict, which has consumed his entire adult life. I'm so, I don't know, so crashed inside that my whole world is the small point of what I can do. So treating the injured, running the mission, that's all I can think about right now. I don't know what I'm going to do. If, if I survive. If you bring me off this service and this war, you will meet a, maybe in a couple of months the regular 26-year-old man who likes to have a couple of beers, having a chat with a girl in a pub or like spend some time on a beach. But right now, unfortunately, I have no resources to even to figure out my own wishes and dreams, even to ask myself a question of what do I want to do. Andriy has one dream, though. It's what swept him from Crimea, brought him to the Donbass. It's what keeps him going. What we have as a goal of existence of Ukrainian armed forces is to keep Ukraine in the borders of 1991 including occupied territories of Donbass, recently occupied territories of southern Ukraine and Crimean Peninsula, of course. I want to go home. (laughs) I still want to go home. And the army gives me that chance. I'm Dave Lawler. Thanks for listening. This episode of How It Happened, Putin's Invasion was reported and produced by Naomi Shaven and me. Allison Snyder is our series editor. Sarah Kehulani-Gu is our editor-in-chief. Music supervision by Alex Sugiura. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Ben O'Brien. Original music by Michael Hanf. Special thanks to Ukrainian journalist Christina Zelenyuk for her help with this episode, and to historian Hiroaki Kuromiya. And thanks as always to our Axios Today colleagues, 
and to Axios co-founders Jim Van Dehei, Mike Allen, and Roy Schwartz. I also want to thank our colleagues outside of the newsroom who worked with us to make this season possible, especially Lucia Orejarena and Chen Gao. Thanks for listening. <laughs>